So a question for you. When was the last time you had a conversation about God with somebody who was not a believer? Thank you, Katie. We have a yesterday. Anybody? 15 minutes ago? Five, no, no, Bob, you don't have anything. This week, um, I was reading a, uh, a new study put out by Barna. It was called Spiritual Conversations in the Digital Age. And uh, Roxanne Stone, who is the editor-in-chief for the Barna Group, um, wrote this in the study. Because you're reading this book, I'm going to guess it was fairly recently regarding that question. Maybe even today. If so, you are among a very small percentage of Americans. Fewer than one in ten talks about God, faith, religion, or spirituality even once a week. And only an additional 15% do it, do so once a month. In fact, the average, adults, average adult says they only have about one spiritual conversation a year. And that's talking about Americans in general. Okay, you say that's low, she goes on to say. But that's among all Americans. What about among Christians? Surely the people of God are talking about faith regularly, Right? We're hoping that. The answer, unfortunately and surprisingly, is not really. Three-quarters of self-identified U.S. Christians are what we call reluctant conversationalists. Reluctant conversationalists. They are having fewer than 10 spiritual conversations a year. In other words, for most Christians in the U.S., topics of faith come up less than once a month. Hearing statistics like that terrify me. And I pray that Missio Day is a, a different community, right? Where we, we are people who are having spiritual conversations, not just in our home and not just at church and not just at Bible studies, not just at missional communities, but we are actually having spiritual conversations with people who are not of faith on a very regular basis. But knowing the statistics, one of the things that we have for our 2020 vision is, this is one of our goals, throw it up for me. Nope, keep on going. Our congregation has a heart. This is one our vision, our goal, our mission. Our congregation has a heart for seeing the gospel spread and is equipped to give an answer for the hope that they have. So we, we want us to, to have a heart for the gospel and not just a heart for the gospel of man i just love jesus i love him so much and keep it bottled up here inside of us and just say i love him so much that you are about ready to explode like a balloon that has way too much air in it no we want you to 
love Jesus so much, love the gospel so much, that you desire to be equipped to give an answer to anybody, everybody, for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Because the reality is, is that Jesus was a magnet. He was a magnet for lost people. They, they were drawn to him because he was also drawn to them. He was drawn to them. They, the rejected people found acceptance. The, the hurting people found healing. The judged, the people who were judged found the judge who was surprisingly non-judgmental. The gospel writer Luke uh, penned these words in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I love that. The outcasts were finding themselves being drawn near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, what did they do? They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Man, the reality is we are all recovering Pharisees. We're grumblers who, who got to get, get over our tendency to even frown on certain sins. John Calvin, the great reformer, comments that we must never think it strange that he should gather to salvation those who have been the worst of men and who have been covered with a mass of crimes. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is doing this, drawing all people, literally all people to himself. Our church must welcome repentant abusers. We must be welcoming people who are in the midst of their struggle with alcoholism and may even come through our doors reeking with alcohol. We must be this place that welcomes those who are, we might see as beyond God's forgiveness. We deserve his pardon, and surely they do as well. And we can all really agree with that, right? Man, yes, amen, preach it, pastor. Thank you. That was my choir today. I said, I'm going to point at you, and I want the amen. Well, I wasn't sold, just so you know. Oh, oh amen. A little quicker, a little quicker. All right? So, but we all, we all have a tendency to just really agree with that. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that's the gospel. Save, yeah, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Amen. But there's the rub, isn't there? Roxanne Stone goes on to say in this report, Christians in America have to live in the tension between Jesus' command to tell others the good news and the growing cultural taboos against proselytizing a core part of Christianity from its origin, and many practicing Christians believe is essential for the salvation of their listeners. Man, we, there's this sticky kind of point where it's like, I want to tell people about Jesus, but what are they going to say? How are they going to feel? I don't want to come across as judging them. I, what do I say? I, I don't feel adequate inside of me. I don't have all the answers. I don't want to look like an idiot. Oh, and you know how the, the Republicans and the Democrats all view Christians. They, they, they're these idiots, or they're the far right, or they're the fundamentalists, or they're the liberals. I don't want to be viewed as that. So what do we do? We shut up. We don't say anything. 
But the reality is we, as followers of, of Christ, have something essential and meaningful to share with our families, our neighbors, our friends, and those that we come in contact with on a daily or even a random circumstance. We have the responsibility and privilege to share the cure for their broken souls. So we live in this tension of deep, biblically rooted convictions about the gospel and the necessity of sharing the gospel in an, in an honest and winsome kind of way. And I know that I personally am not alone in living in that tension. Even I have, my friends, I even struggle with that. About the tension between compassion and conviction. I'm sure that most of you have faced this very issue yourself of how do I, as a believer, have compassion for people and live into the convictions of the gospel? How do I do this? So today we are going to be starting a seven-week series called Come to Jesus. And the aim of this series is to look at the ways that Jesus actually engaged in a wide variety of people and look at how he called people to faith and belief in him. And each week we're going to look at a different person or a group of people and look at that encounter and look at what were their barriers uh, for responding to the gospel. And we're going to look carefully at how did Jesus deal with them and hopefully together, we are going to better navigate that tension between compassion and conviction. I also don't want this just to be a sermon that I just preach. I don't want it just to be a seven to six week, six to seven week kind of series where you go, oh, that was really good. All right, in the next point. I, I want this, I've intentionally positioned this series during the summer. Why? Well, if the rain lets up, most of us are outside, and we, we, we engage with people far more. There's picnics, there's family opportunities, there's neighborhood opportunities. You see the neighbor across the fence. You have these conversations all the time, and this time of year presents some really unique opportunities for you to connect with people. So it's going to be our opportunity to take some next steps in those relationships and look for open doors of the gospel. And be intentional about it. The aim of this series is to actually learn something and then do something. My friends, if you are gathering information up here and your convictions about the gospel are going stronger and it never reaches your heart, you are missing it. We have got to be people who are living out the implications of the gospel. So we want you to be super intentional this summer as it relates to having gospel conversations. And my prayer is that when you feel the tensions about like, how do I talk about the gospel with compassion and conviction? My prayer is that you will apply 
what Scripture has given us to that tension. So my friends, let's look at the Gospel of John and one of one of the favorite stories that I have that includes probably the world's favorite Bible verse in it, John 3.16. Let's read from John 3, starting at verse 1 to verse 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, we cannot see the king, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, you do not believe, and you do not believe, how can, how can you believe what I tell you from heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses, as Moses was lifted up on the serpent, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. So in the flow of the Gospel of John, it's interesting to see that 
the first person that Jesus really in, encounters is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is very intentional. Uh, Jesus' encounter with him becomes foundational for the whole book. This first encounter really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the Gospel of John. And what's more, this, this section of Scripture contains that ever-so-famous verse, right? And so understanding what is happening here really is important We should never take John 3.16 out of context. We've always got to remember that John 3.16 is in a context. It's part of a story. It's part of a bigger story of what's going on. So let's start with what John said before John chapter 3. After telling us about Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine and the cleansing of the temple, John records the following words in chapter 2. Now, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew that all people, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was really at the heart. But immediately after this statement, Jesus introduces us to this character, this person, Nicodemus. And John wants us to see what Jesus saw when he saw mankind. This story is not just about this this man named Nicodemus. He, Nicodemus represents something much more common. And I'm sure you're going to see it as we move forward. So Nicodemus really represents humanity. He, he's not just this one man stuck in time. We've got a story about Nicodemus, John 3, 16. All right, let's move on to the rest of the Bible. No, Nicodemus represents humanity. The struggle that many of us have had when even we have been coming to faith. He represents the struggles that those that we know who are outside of faith in Christ Jesus, their struggles, their barriers. So what do we learn about this man? There's a number of things. First, we've got to understand that he is a Pharisee. He is a ruler of the Jews. And this is a category of person that sets him apart from many other people. He was part of the educated, the the elite. He was part of the the ruling class of Israel during that time. He was part of what was the the 70 men who comprised of the Sanhedrin. So he was part of the, the religious and the political power center of Jerusalem. Nicodemus would have been highly educated. He would have had his PhD in theology and multiple THMs, theology, masters of theology. He would have been the educated of the educated. He would have been well known among the people. When he walked into town, people said, that's Nicodemus. That's him. I've heard about him. He's one of the 70. But more than anything else, this man would have been revered and trusted. He was like, if you will, some sort of Supreme Court justice, when his rulings were made, they were final. If you disagreed with his view of the law, 
you would still say, man, he has a high level of credibility. And that is what Nicodemus is. He is a highly esteemed man. But we also notice something that how Nicodemus approached Jesus. Did you notice when he came? He came when? At night. There's, there's all kinds of commentaries about why he came at night. One, um, during that time of year, it would have been quite warm. So nobody really enjoys really hot, sweaty conversations out in the middle of the sun. You're fighting for shade, so let's come at night. But other people believe that uh, he appeared because he had some questions to be asked. And he wasn't quite ready to ask these questions out in the public. Perhaps he knew from his political experience that there are ramifications for asking public questions out in the open. Or perhaps he just wanted a private conversation with Jesus and he knew Jesus was free. The point is, Nicodemus was a man who was searching. He was looking for something. But thirdly, we also can see that if we look at the entire gospel of, the, uh, of John, Nicodemus appears two other places in the gospel. He appears in, in John chapter 7, where he asks a procedural question when the, the Pharisees are threatening Jesus' teaching. But he also appears way later on in John chapter 19, where he and another man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea brings 75 pounds of expensive spices that were fitting for a king to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So I think it's safe for us to assume that Nicodemus, over time, became a believer. But it didn't happen in John 3. The point of this text is not to show us the conversion of Nicodemus, or to give us a strategy to reach the upper class, highly educated religious people, John, John uses Nicodemus in order to show us something more. I think he wants us to, to look, give us an, an insight, kind of a, a picture of the inside of every single person, every single man that has ever existed. So we see in here that Nicodemus had some barriers. He had some barriers. And so let's look at the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to see what these barriers were. And I want you also to not only just kind of note the barriers, I want you to take careful notice at what Jesus does in these conversations when he comes up against these barriers. The first barrier that Jesus bumps into is this barrier of knowledge. Knowledge. In verse 2, we see Nicodemus start the conversation with a bit of flattery. It was really kind of kind. He, he calls Jesus rabbi. And that, that title of rabbi is a title of respect. Even though Jesus was not part of the educated elite of the day, Nicodemus still gave him a title of rabbi, teacher. He, he called him a, not only a rabbi or a teacher, but he called him a teacher from God. And he acknowledges that God must be with him because 
I have seen the signs. I've heard about the signs that you have done. So apparently you are from God. But the most important word in verse 2 is the word no. Just hear what he says. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus was an educated man. He knew what he saw. He knew what that meant. But look at what Jesus does in that moment. In verse 3, he tells Nicodemus that he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus challenges Nicodemus' underlying assumption. He told him that there was something beyond his knowledge. You know this, but I'm going to tell you something that is beyond what you know. Jesus draws out Nicodemus by making a statement that will generate even more questions. More questions. But Nicodemus needs to see that he does not know what he thinks he knows. His knowledge was a barrier. And friends, we, we have this all the time. In fact, we... Our world has access to far more information than ever before, right? In fact, sometimes I think that we're, we're, we're almost stupider because all that we have to do is say, Hey Siri, Google this for me. But at our hands, we have so much information, and somehow that makes us smarter. Or There's so many more. There's arguments, and they'll, they'll just go, yeah, but have you seen? But have you seen? But I read once in this, and I read here. And people have information, information, they have knowledge. But Jesus would say, but let's get even below that and help them question, what do you really know? The second barrier that Jesus confronts is the barrier of self-sufficiency. In verse 4, Nicodemus immediately responds with a question about what does it mean to be born again? He wants to know how that can happen. He wants to know how to do, how can I do, how can that even be done? To get back into the womb the second time? Come on, Jesus. You know, I'm 180 pounds, and you, you, you say, I've got to be born again? That just cannot happen. How can a man be born again when he's old? It's impossible. And that was exactly Jesus' point. Without being born again, no one can enter the kingdom of God. But before he would not see the kingdom of God. Now he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is attempting to dismantle Nicodemus's trust in himself. Nicodemus's religious training, his education, his knowledge, his self-trust are significant barriers to him trusting in Jesus. He had it all. He had it all. And that was the problem. Jesus points him to something outside of himself in verses 6 and 8. He tells Nicodemus that he needs something that is not connected to the flesh. And that there is power moving beyond his ability in verse 8. Jesus is showing Nicodemus his personal insufficiency. You yourself are the problem. You cannot do this. Is self-sufficiency and knowledge a barrier in our Lincoln Way area? Absolutely. 
Just listen to the conversations. Listen to the content of our conversations. People are, are smart. Man, they are smart. We've got some of the best schools in the area. We are smart and we've got smart kids. And have you seen my house? Have you seen my, my career? Have you seen my kids? Have you seen my spouse? Have you seen what I've accomplished? There's this idea of self-sufficiency. I've got it all. And I don't think I need to convince you that knowledge and self-sufficiency are part of the cultural air that we breathe, especially in the suburbs. But there is still, there is not still an enormous amount of spiritual need in our area as well, right? Man, if the air that we breathe is, I've got it all, the spiritual air says, no, you don't. There's something greater behind the education, behind the spirituality, and the, the material success are lonely, hurting, and lost people. And that might, my friends, be some of you this morning. Lost people. No one would know that you are dying from the inside out. Somewhere in your heart, I think you know that this isn't working and it's not even going to last. So my, my encouragement for you, if that is you who have been banking on your knowledge and banking on your self-sufficiency, consider Jesus. Listen and, and just listen to the rest of this text. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that in order to share the gospel effectively, you have to start dismantling the things that people trust in. You, you, you could wait until the bottom falls out and, and be the person that they hopefully call, and, and that might be a good strategy, but it's also important to help people along the way in their journey to come to terms with the fact that their knowledge and their self-sufficiency aren't going to matter to a hill of beings. So my challenge this week for you in, in dealing with these, these couple of uh, barriers is maybe you can write out some, take some time this week and write out a few sentences that could help you make a turn in conversations. Take some time with a group of friends, maybe your missional community, and ask them, what they would say to various kinds of people in various kinds of circumstances, you know, the kind of people who have it all together. Try this question. How do you point people away from their knowledge and their self-sufficiency and point them to Christ? One person who does this better than myself and better than most people out there is a guy by the name of Tim Keller. He is a pro. Um, if you want to know how to do this, I, I'd encourage you to grab his books, read his books. Uh, one of his good books is called Counterfeit Gods. Grab that book. Write it down right now. If you're uh, an Amazon, look for Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. In that book, he quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says this, Most people if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know 
that they do want and want accurately something that could not, cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give, to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when they, we first fall in love or think of things of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There are there was something we have grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and the chemistry may have been a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. You can have knowledge. You can have all the things this world has to offer, but there is something that is still evading us. They're barriers. The last barrier is this, unbelief. After identifying the first two barriers, we come to the third issue of unbelief. And Nicodemus, in a rather exasperated tone, I could just hear him say it, how can this, these things be? How can it be? And Jesus replies with a direct statement, questioning how Nicodemus could even be a teacher of Israel and still miss it. He, he just kind of gets at it. Jesus has been blowing up Nicodemus's uh, his mind along this conversation, all of his categories are just kind of falling around left and right. But notice that Jesus doesn't bail him out too quickly. He kind of lets him struggle in this water of going, oh, my categories are gone. My knowledge is gone. My self-sufficiency is gone. How can this be? And then in verse 12, he tells him, that his lack of belief is the problem. Your lack of belief is the problem while telling him that it's unlikely that he'll even believe heavenly things if he can't even believe these earthly things. And the, the way that Jesus handles him here would, would make you probably feel a bit uncomfortable. He is patiently but directly challenging Nicodemus' wrong understanding of who Jesus is and what God is doing. Jesus is taking the things that Nicodemus trusts in and he's turning them on their head. He is skillfully and lovingly helping Nicodemus to see the false foundations of his life before he even got to the good news, he is trying to help Nicodemus see his need. But in order to do that, Nicodemus had to walk, or Jesus had to walk with uh, Nicodemus with compassion and conviction. And, and he presents kind of this gospel hope. After dismantling all of Nicodemus' viewpoints, 
He points him to the good news. And we see this in verses 13 through 16. He identified the authority and the divinity of the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. He, he connected the message to something Nicodemus would have been familiar with. The story of Moses, when in the desert, he erected this, this serpent up on a stake. And if the people would just look to the serpent, they would, they would not die. And he, Jesus is going, do you know who's going to be lifted up? I'm going to be lifted up. If you would look to me, Lift up your eyes. You too will be saved like the people of Israel out in the desert. If you would look up to me. He opened the door of salvation wide and he said, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And Jesus in John 3, 16 connects this moment with Nicodemus to the grand plan that God has been orchestrating. He's saying, listen, God so loved the world that whoever, Nicodemus, and that includes you, whoever believes in him, who believes in me, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Nicodemus, it is before your eyes right now. My friends, maybe God is calling you today. Maybe you can see God dismantling things in your life. Maybe you need to heed the call of God today and follow Him. Lift up your eyes from your earthly things, all the things that you think have been foundational and supporting. And lift up your eyes to Christ. But the final thing that I have to wrestle with is at the end of this beautiful dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, did Nicodemus believe? The passage ends with no clear indication that Nicodemus said the sinner's prayer. There was no moment of all of a sudden him just breaking down in tears and just say, Jesus, how? My, my eyes are now open. Yes, I will respond to that. Don't miss this. Jesus shared the gospel with compassion and conviction, but it did not necessarily result in an immediate response. That should encourage you. Jesus shared the gospel the Son of God shared the gospel in a powerful kind of way and Nicodemus did not respond at that time. Listen, we are called to share the gospel with compassion and conviction, but my friends, the results are not up to you. The results are left up to God. He is the one that ultimately softens the heart. He is the one that makes you, when you see and hear and taste the grace that's found in Jesus Christ, you cannot help but to respond to Him. You say, yes! 
It's not by my winsome or your winsome approach in sharing the gospel. It is ultimately God who makes the heart ready to respond. We are not being asked to convert people. You are not the converters. You are only asked to be a witness. But in order to be an effective witness, you have to, and throw this next slide up, to be an effective witness, you have to be a person who talks to other people. You have got to be a person who understands their story. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Maybe you need to shut up for a change. And just listen to their stories very carefully. Listen carefully. Ask good questions. And then being a good, effective witness comes down to knowing what these people, by listening to their stories, what are they trusting in? Listen to them. Know their name. Know their story. Know what they trust. This is the, this is the art of of gospel neighboring, gospel neighboring, to connect and to love and to build into people's lives so that they will have, so that you will have the opportunity to share the gospel with compassion and with conviction by knowing them. When, friends, when, when new people come in the door, do you know their names? That should be one of the first things. Hi, I'm Paul. I am so glad for you to, 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 that you're joining us. What, what's your name? Really? Tell me more about yourself. How'd you, how do you find yourself here? It's so great to have you here. What are you doing for lunch today? I know our family has, has baseball, but would you like to come and join us? Maybe we, can, maybe we can hit the road to House 52, or maybe we can hit Pops on our way out. Would you love to? Do, we would love to get to know you. But it's hard, isn't it? Our nuclear families tend to trump everything. I don't have time. I don't have time. That is, a, that is a phrase that I hear all the time. I just don't have time. On top of that, I, I don't have the resources. I'm calling your bluff. Yes, you do. And you do have the time. My friends, we have got to reprioritize our lives. Live into our convictions. So that we have the opportunity that wherever we go, whatever circumcises, <laughs> don't do that especially your first time, circumstances, whatever your circumstances are, that you are able to enter into the moment and maybe even eject your plans and say, huh, God is placing in my lap an opportunity. Maybe it's time to respond. So here, here's your assignment for the week. First, in your bulletin, Everyone received one of these. These are just ideas, just practical kind of ideas 
for you to be a great neighbor. <laughs> Invite your neighbors over for dinner. I know, it's, it's genius, but we all miss this one. Actually invite them over to your house. Don't just be like Wilson, who, you know, the guy that looks over the, the fence. Actually say, hey, Wilson, why don't, you, why don't you come on over? We'd love to have you for dinner. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You love baseball? You love football? You love soccer? You watch it at home? Why don't you invite your neighbor over to watch it with you? Make, make, make your front lawn or your, your driveway the most appealing place for the kids and your neighbors to come. They see the garage doors open, and what do they do? They, they walk across and say, hey, what are you guys doing? Have cheap hot dogs and hamburgers always in your freezer. You don't have to do a filet mignon for your neighbors. Hot dogs. Have those meals just ready. Pot roast. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I want to encourage you to pray that God would give you the opportunity this summer to actually thread the needle in helping people come to Christ. You're actually doing the work. And then lastly, build relations with relationships with people such that you can really know them and what they are trusting in. My friends, if the conversation doesn't go well, if the first encounter is kind of rough, do not give up. Round two, round three, round four, with compassion and conviction. If God is putting them in your lap, if they're, they're your next door neighbors, if they're your work, uh, workmates, man, God has put them in your lap. Let's use those opportunities. So friends, get ready for a summer of engaging people for Christ. Let's pray.